And we are now picking up at Ephesians 5.18, which actually I'm going to look at in two, two weeks. I'm going to divide Ephesians 5.18 into two sermons uh, because it's very important. Both of them need, both points Paul's making need individual attention in detail for us to really understand. Um, so we're going to pick up, a, and by the way, Ephesians 5.18 is another transitional point in the book of Ephesians. In terms of hermeneutics or interpreting the Bible, Ephesians 5.18 is one of the key verses in the entire book. And it's a key verse in the entire section from chapters 4 through 6. It's kind of the hinge pin that joins chapters 4 through 6. Because everything prior to Ephesians 5.18, starting at chapter 4, verse 1, Paul was giving all these commands to Christians, and he was talking about their personal ethics. You need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. You need to not do this, not do this, not do this in how you live your Christian life in the world. So he was basically talking about a biblical Christian view of personal ethics. And then you come to Ephesians 5.18. And then after 5.18, for the rest of the book, pretty much, Paul's talking about your personal interaction. So before 5.18, it's personal ethics. And after 5.18, it's personal interaction. Personal interaction with other people. And so we're going to see that in Ephesians 5.18 because after Ephesians 5.18, Paul starts talking to us about how we deal with other people and pretty much these are intimate people in our lives. He talks about wives and how they're supposed to function with their husbands, how husbands are supposed to relate to their wives, how children are supposed to relate to their parents, how parents are supposed to relate to their children, how employees are supposed to relate to their employers, how employers are supposed to treat their employees. Uh, so it's personal relations uh, with one another. And the key is, this is very important, where Paul has given all these commands to us as Christians, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then in the rest of the book from 5.18 on, he's saying, relate to these people this way, more commands, more imperatives. Well, how do we do that, Paul? How, do, how can we possibly fulfill all of these lofty expectations that God has? Well, there's only one way, and that's Ephesians 5.18. You cannot live a successful Christian, obe obedient Christian life on your own. You can't do it in your own strength. It's not just a checklist of things to do and not do. You know what that is? That's legalism. There is only one way to fulfill all these obligations and commands that God has given us to do, that He has required of us. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own power. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So you have the resident power of supernatural, almighty, creator God residing in you, which enables the Christian to actually fulfill all of these commands to the degree that God actually requires. That's the only way to do it. We cannot do it in our own strength. It must be energized, motivated, led and guided by the Holy Spirit that lives inside the Christian. If you are not a Christian this morning or afternoon, you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you cannot do all these things. It is impossible. If you're a Christian, you're expected to and will be held accountable to do, as will I. And the reason that it's possible and that we can do it is because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians 5.18. In light of all that, all these, the personal ethics that's supposed to be a regular part of the Christian life, leading all the way up to verse 17, knowing what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18, it's all possible. And Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how you live a successful Christian life. 
That's how you meet all these requirements. That's what makes it possible. So next week, actually, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because that's the key to living a successful, obedient, fruitful Christian life. And there's a lot of confusion on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So that's for next week. Uh, This week is the first part of the verse. And do not get drunk with wine. Now, this verse goes together. It's a unit. And it's kind of interesting at first blush. Well, that seems like kind of a weird contrast out out of nowhere. Paul's talking about getting drunk. Huh? What does that have to do with anything he's been talking about since chapter 4, verse 1? And what does that have to do with being filled with the Holy Spirit and living your life in relation to everybody else? Getting drunk and wine and... Well, it had a lot. It was very pertinent and relevant for the Ephesian Christians. Most of whom lived in this pagan city. Most of them were Gentiles. They lived in this pagan city called Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most corrupt occultic cities on planet Earth in Paul's day. They had all kinds of false religion going on. And a lot of this false religion that these Christian Ephesians, they used to be a part of this false religion. And a lot of this false religion with all of their uh, religious occultic temples all over the place, a lot of that religious practice involved in getting drunk, believe it or not. Drunken religious spiritual festivals and orgies. So this was totally pertinent to the Ephesian Christians. Because probably many of the Ephesian Christians have been involved in drinking or excess of drinking at one time or another, possibly in their own religious life before they became Christians. So it's very pertinent, very relevant. And Paul knew as Christians now, you need to have a biblical view of wine and drinking and drunkenness. And then another reason why it was relevant is in Paul's day, what did everybody drink? In the absence of refrigeration like we have today in electricity, wine was just, you had bread and wine. Wine was like the main drink that was available and accessible. You didn't have uh, things to be putting in the refrigerator and freezing and that kind of a thing. Um, Or even the, the extent and the kind of plumbing that we do today where you just turn on the faucet and you have pure running water at your disposal even though they had plumbing. So... Wine was just all over the place. Everybody drank it. And so all the more, since wine was a part of everybody's life and it was in the culture and it was everywhere and it was just common at mealtime, the Christian all the more needed to develop a biblical view of wine, drinking, and getting drunk. So that's what Paul does here. That's the need. That's the reason for the contrast here and the exhortation. And he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. So I just want to stop right there and talk about that phrase or that command. Paul gives to Christians. And he would say to us the same thing. Christians today in Mountain View at Grace Bible Fellowship, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what Paul's talking about. So then, do not get drunk with wine. And we are compelled here then to deal with a biblical view of wine, drinking, drunkenness, or when I say wine, I'm also talking about alcohol. So beer would be included in that, okay? Alcohol. So we need to come up with a biblical view of alcohol, a biblical view of of drinking. And so I decided to choose this non-controversial subject today to see what the Bible had to say. By the way, Christians and drinking, the Bible and drinking, very controversial. There's, there's probably all kinds of different personal convictions and views right here among Christians in our little church. So my goal, just so you know, one of my goals is not, or one of, yeah, one of the things that is not my goal today is by the end of the hour to make sure that everybody is exactly on the same page and totally agrees with everything I say. That is not my goal. It's an impossible goal. Because like I said, we, we have divergent views. I already know that. And we all need to take our view 
and be willing to scrutinize it in light of Scripture. Pour it once again through the grid of biblical truth. That is the goal. Let's look again. Let's re-examine. And hopefully you're not finally settled once and for all and it's settled conviction for once and for all for the rest of your life of what you view about alcohol. I think we always have to be willing to be taught by God. We are all in process. Even if it's we have the biblical view, it, maybe it needs fine-tuning. Or maybe our attitude needs to be kept in check or fine-tuned regarding our legitimate position. Because I found that to be the case for me. Because I've been uh, studying the Bible formally for 20 years, studying alcohol for 20 years. And before I get into our study, and by the way, it's not so much a sermon today as much as a Bible study I want us to do together in, in light of this topic. By the way, I'm calling it the Bible on beer. What does the Bible have to say about wine, drinking, and alcohol? But just a little bit about my background and where I'm coming from. So maybe you're wondering, does he have an agenda or a prejudice that's going to dictate his answers? I don't think I do. My goal this morning is just see what the Bible says. So I was trying to be as objective as possible this week and all the time that I was studying. What does the Bible have to say on this? And so I laid everything on the table and even my own presuppositions. You know what? I'm going to subject those newly and afresh to the Word of God so that I can be taught anew. But my background was I grew up uh, as a Roman Catholic and in the Roman Catholic, and I was an altar boy, and for communion in the Catholic Church, you have real wine. So that's what I grew up with. So uh, wine with alcohol in it was not uh, seen as negative, sinful, inherently evil. Uh, it was not stigmatized whatsoever in a negative way. There were no negative connotations to wine as a Catholic growing up whatsoever. So that's just the way I grew up for 18 years. But when I came, when I entered high school, one of my sisters became a Mormon. And she happened to be my best friend. But I did not become a Mormon, but she did. She was very committed, zealous. And because she was my best friend, I was very sensitive to her views. So then I was being exposed to a different view that I was raised with. And the official Mormon position was that alcohol is bad pretty much all of the time. That's why they have water and Wonder Bread at communion in the Mormon church. Seriously. So... Alcohol, wine of any kind was absolutely anathema, hands-off, stigmatized, no way, never. And if you did, you compromised as a Mormon. And that's why when my... I had two sisters that were Mormons, or they still are, and I'll never forget when my oldest sister uh, was pregnant with her first child, which became my niece, and she was about to give birth, and she was in the hospital in a, a labor that went on literally for days, and they were having problems and complications, and they couldn't get her to relax... And so the news was, the controversial news, was that the doctors actually recommended she drink a cup of red wine, which totally went against her religious convictions. And usually there's no way that she would subject herself to that, but because of the pain that was going on for two days, she took the wine. And that was, whoo, that was a big deal for my sister. I will never forget that. And you know what? It worked. It relaxed her body. All this medication, all this other stuff they tried did not work. And she said the wine that God made from the vine, relaxed her, and she ended up having a successful uh, labor with my first niece. So I'll never forget that. That was kind of interesting. Many years ago, 24 years ago. Uh, so then I was exposed to that. And then I became a Protestant, Bible-believing, born-again Christian in college. And then I was exposed to the Protestant view, or many diverse views in the Protestant world, of their views on wine, which was very different, for the most part, than Roman Catholicism and even different from Mormonism. So then now I'm being confronted with three different views on what the Bible has to say or what God thinks about wine. So it, I've been processing this for 20 years. And I'll just tell you this. Since I became a born-again Christian at age 19, so it's been 21 years, I have changed my view as a Christian. 
I've changed my view since I've become a pastor years ago on alcohol, according to what the Bible says, or not changed it as much as I think I've refined it according to Scripture. At least I hope I have. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. And I, I was never addicted to alcohol. I grew up in a home that wasn't a Bible-believing home. We weren't taught what Scripture had to say about alcohol. And all of my friends growing up liked beer and drank beer and all throughout high school. And I never did. I never liked it, but all my friends did. We had alcohol in our home all the time. I didn't drink it, but our family did. Uh, so I don't have any agenda. I had no addictions to it. I hate beer, personally. Um, so just to let you know, my agenda is to see what does the Bible have to say about alcohol. So let's go ahead and look right now. And go ahead and get your hand out there if you have it. No, I will have you turn to some key passages um, as we go through. I want to highlight. There's a couple of places I just want to kind of highlight and amplify because I think those are the more important things in this discussion. Um, and by the way, if you disagree with me at the end with my conclusion... That's okay. You can disagree with me. Uh, hopefully you don't disagree with God and His Word. That's really the issue, isn't it? So if you have questions, feel free to ask me. If you want to disagree with me, come up and talk to me about it. But if you're going to give me reasons of why you disagree with me that aren't from the Bible, I'm sorry, I'm not going to listen. It'll fall on deaf ears. Ping! It's just your opinion because we can't be subject to the Word of man, right? It's got to be the Word of God. Same thing for me. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at what the Bible has to say in an overview-like fashion on wine, alcohol, drinking, and drunkenness. Only 17 points I came up with this morning. Actually, I had about 32. Had to cut it back. So I did. So I'm not going to cover everything the Bible has to say on drinking and alcohol, but let's go ahead and start with that verse, Ephesians 5:18, where Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. The first thing you need to know is this is a command. This is an imperative. This is for Christians. You are obligated to obey this verse. I am, just as much as the Ten Commandments. In so many people's minds, is obligatory. This is a command from God Himself. Do not get drunk with wine. Period. If you want to be obedient to God, you will comply with that verse. That's the main thing. We don't want to miss the main point of today's message. There it is. It's this verse. Do not get drunk with wine. Do not get drunk. I can stop it right there. For that is dissipation. And then I just define these two terms uh, according to the usage in the New Testament. Uh, the first one there, drunkenness. Well, what is drunkenness? Paul says don't get drunk. Drunkenness is when alcohol in the blood begins to inhibit, restrict, modify, or interrupt the normal functions of the mind and body. The emphasis, by the way, in the Old Testament and the New Testament is how it inhibits the mind, the thinking ability, the thinking faculties, the thinking capabilities. is utmost important because Christianity is a religion of the mind, first and foremost. I've been saying that. It is a religion of the mind. It is about truth. No, the truth, the truth will set you free. You assess truth, apply truth, implement truth with your mind. But it first comes with comprehension, understanding, using your intellect. The mind, the faculties of comprehension is primary in the Christian life. And Paul just was talking about how you use your mind in verses before it. And knowing the will of God, using your mind to discern the will of God, to think through the will of God, to use your mind. So the worst thing you can do is derail the use of your mind in all of its fullest capacities. And the quickest way to do that is by getting drunk with alcohol. So there's another connection. So drunkenness is when alcohol in the blood begins to inhibit, restrict, modify, or interrupt the normal functions of the mind, and as a result, the body. And the hard part, it has varying degrees. You know, different people get intoxicated with different amounts of alcohol, don't they? Depending upon how much you weigh or whatever you're resistance to alcohol is. So there is no fine, I mean, specific line here. It's subjective to a degree, and it has varying degrees. 
Drunkenness clouds, distorts one's thinking ability. So that's what drunkenness is. Having too much alcohol in your blood. How much is too much? Oh, that's the question that I'm not going to answer today. Number two. Uh, getting drunk leads to dissipation, which is a terrible thing. What is dissipation? Wow, that's a big word. I had to look that up in three different dictionaries. One of them was a Greek dictionary. And then it said, debauchery. Oh, that really helped me. Well, actually, it didn't help me at all. Let's get more specific. Well, it's profligacy. Did you know that? Well, that didn't help me. I need another dictionary. This is not good. This is not practical. Dissipation means debauchery, profligacy. That's hard to say. Being, becoming unrestrained, letting loose, if you will, in a bad way. Wasteful is one of the literal translations of that word, that Greek word. Wasteful. Getting drunk is a waste of your life because it leads to wasteful behavior. Another synonym, it is excess. Unrestrained. Excess. Too much. A lack of moderation. Dissolute. Ruinous was another translation of that word. Ruinous. Bad news. The point is it has the idea of a disorderly life resulting from the lack of self-control. That's the key word. When you start messing with alcohol, you're on the brink of losing self-control. Self-control of your mind, your choices, your behavior. That's Paul's biggest concern with it. That's God's biggest concern with it. So that's dissipation. Okay, specific words that are used regarding wine. Um... There's a lot of synonyms for the word wine, by the way, especially in the Old Testament, but I'm just going to zero in on the two main words that are used. Number three, yayin is the Hebrew word, the most common Old Testament word for wine, used 138 times, unless, of course, you're using your Hebrew Matasoretic text that has it 141 times. But point eight, this most commonly used word for wine in the Old Testament, 83 times it refers to fermented drink. Very important. Fermented drink. Drink that can make you drunk. The reason that's important is because I've heard Bible teachers say that yayin uh, refers simply to just grape juice. That is not true. I looked at many of these references. 83 times it refers to fermented drink. And the remaining times, which would be over 50 other references in the Old Testament, quote, it may fairly be presumed to do so. In other words, in all 141 times this word is used, it is in reference to fermented drink or wine that is alcoholic. It's not grape juice. So that quote came from Unger's Bible Dictionary and there are other sources that can verify that. And you just go through, get a concordance and look them all up. As you read through them, there's no reason to conclude that, oh, this means grape juice. This is Welch's baby. No, that is not what it's talking about. And even if it's used as a metaphor, it's still based on the literal use of wine which is alcoholic or fermented drink. Point B regarding yayin in the Old Testament. It is used in good ways and bad ways. Good, bad, uh, good connotations and bad connotations. Uh, one good connotation of many would be Genesis 14, 18, where Melchizedek, the high priest, the king of Salem, came out to greet Abraham and to bless him, and he brought uh, the goods. He brought a bottle of wine and some bread, and they were going to feast and celebrate. And it's in a positive context, and this is yayin. This is wine or drink that is fermented. They're not going to get drunk, but it was the drink of the day. They were going to have self-restraint, but anyway. Oh, so that was a good connotation. Then it's also used many times in bad connotations when you drink too much of it. 
And I, I do want to read from Genesis chapter 9, if you have your Bible, on, regarding Noah, because this is amazing. You know, you think of Noah. You know, Hebrews 11 commends Noah as one of the great Old Testament saints who was a man of faith. He was commended for his faith. He was a man of faith. He walked with God. He loved God. He was saved. All of his sins were forgiven. As a matter of fact, in his day, he was the only upright man in all of planet Earth. And God spared him and saved him. He was a man of God. Exemplary. Stellar. A model believer of God. And he's commended uh, for that in Hebrews chapter 11. But you know what? Noah was not perfect. Noah was a sinner. Noah was finite. Noah had weaknesses. Glaring ones. Noah walked with feet of clay. Noah was a cracked vessel. Just like all of us, right? We are all sinful and weak, even if you're a believer. We're human. So look at Genesis 9. Uh, and this is where Noah was on the ark with his family for over a year. Can you imagine an entire year with seven of his family members and all those animals? And that's a real story. That's true. That's history. The ark was real as long as what? Huge. All those animals got on. And then people complain, well, how could, how could Noah get all those animals on the ark? How, how did he fit two uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tyrannosaurus Rex on the ark? Well, if there were dinosaurs at that time and weren't extinct yet, uh, maybe he brought in a little baby Tyrannosaurus Rex about this big, and, a, and miss, not Mr. and Mrs., but baby boy and baby girl. Why is that not possible? Those are manageable, right? Conserves on space, conserves on food. Put them over in the corner, a little cage. Why does he have to bring full-grown lion and full-grown lion? Why can't he bring little baby lion and little baby lion, cute little cuddly thing? What, what's wrong with that? doesn't say how old the animals were. Anyway, just a thought. Uh, so chapter 9, verse 20. So Noah's on the ark for over a year. Oh, and then they get out and God spared them and there's dry land. And look what happens. They have a party. They celebrate. Verse 20, Noah began farm after he got off the ark, Noah began farming and he planted a vineyard where you grow grapes and with those grapes you make wine and that wine becomes fermented and if you drink too much, you can get drunk. Planted a vineyard. He made some wine. Verse 21, he drank of the wine that he made and he became drunk. That was sinful. That was wrong to become drunk. He uncovered himself after he was drunk inside of his tent, whatever that means. Took his clothes off. Verse 22, Ham, his son, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father in his tent. He told his two brothers outside, Dad's in the tent naked. That was not good. 23, but Shem and Japheth, the other two sons, took a garment or blanket and they laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards. They didn't want to see their naked dad and they covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah finally woke up from his wine, notice, he, he got knocked out. He had so much alcohol and he was inebriated to the point of getting knocked out, passed out drunk. Probably had a hangover. And then when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. You know what God did because he got drunk? God punished Noah and God punished Noah's son and God uh, punished an entire generation of people who came from the loins of Noah through one of his sons because of his sin of drunkenness. Amazing. So the consequences were... Severe. They were huge, and the consequences went on for generations and infected entire nations, all because of one man was unrestrained and he drank too much, and that was Noah, who was a believer and loved by God. How could Noah do that? Well, we do that too. We do those kind of sins, don't we? Could, wouldn't it be shameful to think of God taking one of our gross, hidden sins or even public sins like this, and then God put it in Scripture for everybody to read for all time? Boy, that'd be embarrassing. When we get to heaven, I'd hide in the corner. 
And I'm glad God didn't write about me. Hopefully we'll forget about those things when we're in heaven. But Noah, he's a believer. He's forgiven of God. Christ died for his sins. So anyway, go back to Ephesians now. And your hand out there on Ephesians 5.18. Um, so those are bad and negative connotations of this one word. So you can, all that just to say, you can't take this one word that's used 141 times and pigeonhole it and say it's always used this way. Because it's not. It's used in a multiplicity of ways. And then letter C, wine is never used in the Old Testament to refer to grape juice. I looked up as many verses as I possibly could, and then uh, this scholar says the same thing, put his reference there. Observation he made as he did a study on this from the Bible. So that's important. Look at number four. This is the New Testament word, oinos, for wine, and this is the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18. Oinos. The most common word in the New Testament for wine occurs probably around 20 times. I looked up every reference in the Bible see how it was used. It's either used literally or as a metaphor, but even literally or as a metaphor, it's used uh, consistently in terms of what it's talking about. Oinos, the most common New Testament word for wine used with good and bad connotations, just like uh, the Old Testament word. Because I've heard it taught by Bible teachers that oinos, the New Testament word for wine, is grape juice and non-alcoholic. That's just not true. You can't, I couldn't find an example in the New Testament where that was true. Rather, it refers to fermented fruit of the vine, fermented drink. If, if oinos just meant grape juice, an unfermented drink, then Ephesians 5.18 makes absolutely no sense. Think about it. Look at Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with grape juice. Do not get drunk with... Well, I, I love Welch's grape juice. I drink a lot of it. I will drink a gallon of grape juice. My wife will get mad at me because it's expensive. And you could drink three gallons of grape juice and not get drunk. You'll get sick before you get drunk. So if we're going to say that oinos is non-alcoholic, then Ephesians 5.18 doesn't make sense. Oinos is clearly fermented. It has an alcohol content in it, and it has the ability to make a person drunk. And that's why Paul said, don't drink so much that you get drunk with oinos. Do not get drunk with oinos, wine, for that is dissipation. Very important to keep that in mind, to be balanced and honest with the biblical text. And I, you know, these Bible teachers that say that oinos always means grape juice, it's never fermented, they have a good motive. They don't want to give a, you know, a carte blanche blanket endorsement for alcohol so that the church goes out in their liberty and starts becoming alcoholic and whatever else and flaunting their liberties. So that's their motive. It's a good one, but it's just we've got to be honest with what the Bible says. Okay, let's go on. So those are definitions, and now we've got the foundation laid. So let's look at biblical principles uh, that we've gleaned from Scripture. The first one is number five, that the Bible talks a great deal about wine. And it's a comprehensive subject. That's why I can't do justice to it in 40 minutes. And that's why this study is not done when I'm done today. This is a study that needs to go on for all of us individually in our Bible studies and together and even as a church. Uh, there's just too much information. The Bible just talks comprehensively about wine, alcohol, uh, drunkenness. And that's the beauty of the Bible once again, the sufficiency of the Bible. The Bible talks about everything. It addresses everything in life that we have to be confronted with. Unlike every other religious book, it deals with everything. And do we have to deal with alcohol today in America in 2007? It's all over the place, isn't it? They say we have over 20 million teenage drinkers in America. 20 million. How many college students? That's what college was all about, the colleges I went to. And Christian colleges are not exempt from it either. When I was in high school and college, Fridays and weekends, it was all about partying. And that meant, where were you going to go to drink and consume alcohol? 
That's code for party. That's what it means. So the world says, drinking, getting drunk is a good thing. It makes you feel good. It's great. And actually the Bible says, no, it's not great. It's wrong. It's sinful. Don't do it. So the very antithesis of what God says. But anyway, the Bible talks a great deal about it. So let's just highlight some key points. Number six, simple one, wine is not evil. According to what we just looked at, the study from Scripture, all the words that are used, wine is not evil. In and of itself, inherently, wine is not evil. Just like the television is not evil. What's on it is garbage. What you allow yourself to watch and be exposed to could be sinful. And if you act it out, it's sinful. But the television itself is not evil. Same thing with wine is not evil. Physical intimacy and sex is not evil. It was a gift from God. It can be abused and misused. So wine is not evil either. The abuse and misuse of wine is evil. Just examples uh, of the Old Testament, even the New Testament, where wine, fermented drink, was used in a way that was even a blessing by God, just some examples, um, or tells us it wasn't evil, was the priest. God told Moses and Aaron, when you make your sacrifices, one of the sacrifices and oblations that was to be poured on the altar to God as a pleasing sacrifice at times was wine. You remember when God had that menu of all the unclean things they couldn't drink and couldn't eat? The unclean ones? God didn't put wine on that list. He put bacon. I love bacon. I hate beer. God put bacon on the do not eat list. Wine was not on there. Considered unclean by God. Yet it still had the potential to make somebody drunk. Nehemiah, the great prophet of God. He was an upstanding man of God. He was exemplary in all the Old Testament of men of God. Nehemiah, what did he do for a living? He drank wine for a living for the king. He was the taste tester. Okay, that didn't kill me. Okay, king, it's okay for you. But he did it with moderation and appropriately. So Nehemiah, a man of God, uh, was a part of his living. Um, and then one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 3.10, says that if you're generous and you give from your first fruits to the Lord and all of your income, he, God in turn will bless you and reward you and he will make your uh, vats overflow with new wine. Not grape juice, not water. Wine. So wine is endorsed as something that is good and a blessing from God. Ecclesiastes 9.7 uh, encourages the believers to enjoy the fruit of the vine or the wine that they have produced. Did you know Jesus made wine? Look at John chapter 2. This is the strongest argument. Jesus didn't make Welch's grape juice. Some people argue that. That isn't what he made. John chapter 2, the first miracle that Jesus ever did. By the way, Jesus began his ministry when he was 30 years old because Luke 3 tells us that. And in John chapter 2 is the first miracle Jesus ever performed. At age 30. Some people try to tell us that Jesus was doing miracles as a little kid. Some of the cryptic so-called gospels. That's not true. This is his first miracle because that's what it says in verse 11 of John chapter 2. So here's the first miracle Jesus ever performed. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Mary was not only invited to this wedding, she was actually in charge apparently of some things, the reception for this wedding. And uh, Jewish weddings typically would go almost a week long. And at these, and you have dessert, right? You have cake, and they had wine. And they had a lot of it, and you had to have a week's worth of wine. Uh, so Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding where Mary apparently is in charge of some of the festivities. And verse 2 says, Jesus was also invited with his disciples. And when the wine gave out, they drank all the wine. This is not grape juice. This is wine. It was fermented. They drank it all. The mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother Mary said to his servants, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Huge, massive 
water pots. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water to the brim. You got a lot of wine here, or water here. They filled them up to the brim. And in verse 8 says, Jesus said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, Jesus turned water into wine. It was fermented wine. It was wine. It was oinos. It became wine. He didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew where the wine came from. The head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said to the bridegroom, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. That makes sense, right? you got good wine and bad wine, and you serve the good wine first because then everybody's taste buds, they're fresh. Oh, this is delicious, and then everybody you know, has too much to drink, and they lose some of their sensitivities, and then, oh, the ba- they can't tell the difference with bad wine. Just give me more. You have kept the good wine until now. So not only did Jesus make wine, this is the best wine. This is supernatural wine. This is heavenly wine. This is divine from the hand of Almighty God and Jesus Christ himself. It was a wine that had never been tasted before. Because it didn't go through the process of fermentation from corrupt, dying plants. Verse 11, this beginning of his miracles, literally, so the first miracle Jesus ever performed. Age 30, right here, Cana of Galilee, water into wine. Jesus endorsed the use of wine. He made wine. Jesus drank wine. There's a controversial one. Luke 7, 34. Jesus drank wine. He's talking publicly and he says, you know, uh, you're condemning me, you're judging me falsely. He's talking to his critics and he said, and you know, John the Baptist came not drinking and not eating because... Uh, John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow from birth, from his mother's womb. So the angel told John the Baptist's mother, he's going to be a prophet for me his whole life. He's not going to drink alcohol. His whole life he'll be a Nazarite. So that was, that was known about John the Baptist. He refrained from not just alcohol, but from vinegar and from grape juice. Because the Nazarite vow wasn't just abstaining from wine and alcohol. It was anything from the vine, including vinegar and grape juice, according to Numbers chapter 6. So that was true of John the Baptist. No grape juice, no Welches even. But that was his reputation. People knew he was a Nazarite. And so people were saying, well, why aren't you more like John? He doesn't go around drinking alcohol like you do, Jesus, especially with sinful people like the tax gatherers at their parties in their home. So people knew that. Jesus didn't deny it either. He did drink alcohol, unlike John the Baptist. Luke 7.34, check it out. Jesus' own words. Okay, number seven. Uh, Christians need to exercise great caution with wine. You know, I'm, I'm saying out of Scripture that wine was fermented and they drank wine and God blessed wine and blessed the people with it. Again, we've, you know, we've got to be careful here and have the proper balance, moderation, being biblical, being very careful. So Christians need to exercise great caution with wine. The Bible warns about addiction to alcohol. It always has that susceptibility to create a sinful situation, especially with sinful people. We are susceptible to sin. We are susceptible to abusing every God gift that God gives us, aren't we? I don't care what it is. Every gift from God is good, and we can abuse every single one of them. So we've got to be cautious. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. Number eight, drunkenness is a sin, point blank. Drunkenness is a sin, too much alcohol. I'll just read Galatians 5, 19 and 21, where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit... And the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh is uh, sinful, fleshly activity or behavior. The deeds of the flesh, they're evident. They are clear. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions, envying, and drunkenness. It's a sin. Number nine, the Bible commands believers not to associate with drinkers or drunkards. Drinkers and drunkards. But what I mean by drinkers, yeah, is people who are given to alcohol with excess. Proverbs 23.19 says, it's probably talking about unbelievers, who all they want to do, they want to party and drink and, and booze it up. And Proverbs 23 says, if you, if you want to be wise, don't affiliate and associate and hang out with those people. They will influence you the wrong way. I know this from when I was in high school. All my friends, the guys I grew up with, all my, were on my sports teams together. I mean, I was the point guard. I had to pass in the ball. I was the quarterback. He was going to block for me. i got to be nice. i got to hang out with this guy. But all they want to do is drink beer. And Paul said, or the Proverbs author says, if you want to be wise, don't associate with those people. Don't affiliate with them. They will drag you down into the pit with them. That's unbelievers. But then Paul says the same thing about 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, if anybody calls himself a believer. So he, he says a so-called believer. A professing Christian who is prone to and given to excess drinking. Don't hang around with that person. Do not affiliate with that person. Don't associate with them. Confront them about their excessive drinking, and if they don't respond, have nothing to do with them. Don't even have a meal with them. Because they're not responding to God's will. Bad company corrupts good morals, says Paul. Number 10, drinking does not produce true joy or peace. Why do people drink to excess, by the way, anyway? Well, in the world, it's one reason. It's fun, right? It'll give you true joy and happiness and peace, is what we're told. It doesn't. God is the source of joy. In the presence of God is joy, says the Psalms. Jesus said, I came to give you joy, complete fulfillment and joy. Uh, Paul tells us the Holy Spirit is the one who gives joy through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So if you want true joy, true fulfillment, true contentment, true peace of mind, it's only through God, knowing Him, a relationship with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is not through a man-made uh, means. Especially alcohol. It's not gonna, you know what? It's not gonna give you true joy and peace about, especially about your problems. People drink to excess to get away and run away from their problems, don't they? But when they wake up and get over their hangover, their problems are still there. And they've actually created more problems in the meantime. So alcohol is not the answer. The Bible doesn't say run away from your problems or drown your problems. Drown away your anxieties through alcohol. When 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You know, it's actually not a bad thing to be depressed or to be sad or to be grieving. That is not a bad thing. If you struggle with being depressed, depression, sadness, guilt, that's not a bad thing. That is God's mechanism to drive us to Him, to drive us to prayer is what it should do. And if you're going to numb it with alcohol or other drugs like that, then you're going to be desensitized to the emotions that God created you with that He wants to use to drive you to Him for sufficiency. So being depressed, that's not a bad thing. Being sad is not a bad thing. Being grieved or mourning is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says explicitly, there is an appropriate time to mourn. There is an appropriate time to weep. There is an appropriate time to be sad. That's a healthy thing. So, emotions are to the soul what physical pain is to the body. Do you want somebody to take away all your physical pain? So that when you touch a hot stove, you can't react before your hand burns off? 
So emotions are to the soul what physical pain is to the body. It's God's warning system. So don't drown away your emotions. Deal with your emotions in a biblical manner. Uh, Number 11, elders, pastors, deacons, and leading women in the church are not to be addicted to wine. That's what those passages right there say. Literal terminology. If you want to be an elder, pastor, leader in the church, male or female, a, a a woman deaconess or a woman discipler or leader in the church, you are not to be addicted to wine. That's one of the qualifications. Notice it doesn't say that a leader in the church can never drink wine. That's what some churches hold to. If you're going to be a pastor, leader in the church, you can never drink wine in any case whatsoever. It's, you can't find that verse in the Bible. It says you can't be addicted to wine. Uh, practical application. So let's go, 12 through 17. In light of these verses and passages, number 12, don't use alcohol to manipulate other people or to induce them to do something in your favor. Now, that was done in Genesis 19.32. I believe it was Lot and his daughters. Well, I'm not going to read there, but that's what they did. Hey, let's get Dad drunk. Let's give him a whole bunch of... And let's get him drunk, and then let's use and abuse him. Let's manipulate him for our purposes. That goes on all the time. The Christian community needs to be very careful about its view regarding alcohol so that they are never manipulating, inducing other people. Kind of like, you know, greasing the, the wheel to make it slide a little smoother. To make people make decisions that you would like to get. To make them behave the way you want them to behave. Don't do that. That's manipulation. Number 13. Drink wine with moderation. If at all. Do you know, it's okay if you're a Christian and you go the rest of your life never drinking wine. That's okay. God would be pleased with that. And you have the freedom to make that choice. Actually, that's a wise choice. That would actually be a healthy choice. Um, But if you are going to drink, Paul says, or just one of his general principles is do all things in moderation. I do want to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12, because that's another passage that's confused and abused many times. Because some people who want to use their liberty to even commit sin will use this verse. And they'll say, oh, well, Paul says everything is permissible. Everything's permissible. He didn't say everything was permissible. He didn't say sin was permissible in this passage. Keep that in mind. Sin is not permissible. It's only things that are non-sinful are permissible. So he's saying that things that are permissible are permissible. Keep that in mind as we read. Uh, Look at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, that is, things that are not sinful. He's not saying sinful things are lawful for me. He's talking about gray areas where there's freedom and liberty in the Christian life. All things are lawful for me, things that are not forbidden, but not all things are profitable. See, not all, not everything is beneficial. Yeah, I can do that, probably. That probably won't necessarily inherently be sinful. The question is, is it profitable? Is it helpful? Does it edify? That's what he's saying. That's the higher standard. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Uh, food is for the stomach. Notice he's even talking about food as the illustration. For example, food, if you will. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for food, but God will do away with them both. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And he reiterates this same principle later on in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, talking about something else. That all things are that are lawful are profitable. Everything is permissible, permissible, but not everything is necessarily beneficial, wise, or profitable. So keep that in mind regarding your use of alcohol. Look at number 14. There are definite times for believers in the Bible to abstain from wine or alcohol. Aaron and the priests in spiritual service. That's clear and explicit. They weren't. They didn't always have to abstain from wine. It was just when they were actually doing service in the temple. 
Aaron could drink wine when he was at home, relaxing with his wife. B, during a Nazarite vow, when it began and as long as you had the Nazarite vow, if you didn't take a lifelong Nazarite vow. And it wasn't just abstaining from wine. It was grape juice and vinegar too. C, when it violates the law of the land. So here in America, that's what Romans 13 says, obey the law of the land. Some of the laws of the land that we have here are you can't have an open container of alcohol in your car. Christian, don't do that. Well, I wasn't drinking it. Too bad. It's the law of the land. Obey. Teenagers or 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds and under aren't supposed to drink. Well, my mom said I could. Don't do it. It's the law of the land. Romans 13. D, if you are addicted to wine, 1 Corinthians 6.12, we just read that. Paul said, you know, if, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. If, if I am susceptible to caving into some sin where I am weak, I'm not even going to go there. So if you have a susceptibility to alcoholism or addiction to it, refrain from it and stay away from it. Avoid the very appearance of evil, if that applies to you. Uh, e, if you are a ruler or leader in the, in the process of actually making decisions that affect you know, your nation and your area and lots of people in the process of decision-making. It'll mess up your decision-making process. John the Baptist abstained from alcohol his entire life as a Nazarite. G, when it violates your conscience, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And Paul's even talking about food and alcohol in Romans 14. Romans 14 is all about gray areas. Gray areas. Christian liberty. And he specific, the illustration is food. Food and wine. And Paul concludes the whole argument, you know, if there's doubts and you got some guilt and it's bugging your conscience, then don't do it. Whatsoever is not a faith, sin. Never violate your conscience as a Christian. When in doubt, say no. Don't do what Jiminy Cricket said. He always said, let your conscience be your guide from Walt Disney. That's terrible advice. Um, and then H, go to Romans 14. A time to abstain in front of a weaker brother, in front of a weaker Christian on this issue of Christian liberty related to drinking wine. Because like I said, in the church, God knows there are different views. You have different views. Some of you don't agree with my view. And there are others who don't agree with other people's views. So we have different views on wine. So we've got some... Paul divides them up into two categories. Stronger brothers in the Lord and weaker brothers in the Lord. Just so you know the context, Romans 14. A stronger brother in the Lord is another word for a mature Christian on this specific issue. It doesn't mean they're mature in every other area of life. It's they, are, they have a maturity of thinking on this very specific issue that he's talking about in a gray area of living. And in this case, it's with food and wine. That's where they are mature. They are the strong brother. In other words, they know that wine is not inherently evil. They know that uh, pork is not inherently evil, and there's no hang-ups with it. And if pork is served as a Christian, I have the freedom and liberty now in Christ to eat pork. Whereas in the Old Testament, I couldn't do that because it was on the blacklist of things to abstain from. But Christ said he's put aside that now, and we can now eat with freedom and liberty, so now I can have pork and it doesn't bother my conscience one iota. Because I understand that's what Scripture says. My conscience has been informed by the Word of God to bring me up to speed of a right perspective on this issue of what I'm eating pork. I understand that biblically, therefore, I have a mature view on this. The weaker Christian, he still, maybe he grew up as a Jew, he abstained from pork his whole life, his parents drained that in, pounded it into his head, and then he becomes a Christian, and now he sees pork, and he freaks out, and oh, I'm not supposed to, that is unclean according to Leviticus, but he's a Christian now, he needs to mature in his thinking, because God, there's a new order at hand. God has made a new decree regarding pork. It never was inherently evil. It was just called ceremonially unclean for a time as an illustration to prepare people for Christ. 
Now, you can have bacon and enjoy it. So, the believer with a Jewish background who has a prohibitive conscience needs to mature in his thinking. But for now, while he thinks pork is evil or he has a difficult conscience eating it, then he is the weaker brother. So that's what Paul's talking about. Stronger, mature Christian on this issue, weaker Christian on this issue, and specifically he uses the illustration of wine or drink. Now look at Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another. Don't go around judging other Christians because of their personal convictions on gray area issues. I'm glad the church today doesn't fight over gray area issues. Aren't you? Like music and dress. And, well, anyway. Um, Therefore, let not us judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. That's the higher calling, isn't it? It's not what pleases me and what I want to do and how I can exercise my liberty. The higher standard for the mature Christian is, how is my behavior going to affect another believer and their walk with God, and especially their conscience? So Paul's saying, verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Wine is not clean. Food and meat, pork. That's what he's talking about. Wine and pork. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So the weak Christian thinks these are unclean. Anathema. Don't touch. Evil. Red alert. Paul says, man, that, that it's in their conscience. Don't mess with their conscience. Don't violate their conscience. Don't sin against their conscience. Verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking to love. Do not destroy your food. Do not, sorry, do not destroy with, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Here is the scenario in Paul's day. Think about it. Because many Christians answer this very simple question the wrong way. Imagine you're in the first century. Uh, you are invited to a dinner by an unbeliever. Maybe he's a ruler in the city. He's a nice guy. He's a pagan. He's not a Jew. He invites you and another Christian couple to dinner with him, and you're the mature Christian, and you don't have any problem drink, eating pork and drinking wine. But you know there's another Christian couple that comes to the same house, and you're all having dinner together, and the, gent the unbeliever, he pours uh, everybody a cup of wine, and he serves everybody pork. And so now you've got a choice to make because you know your fellow believer, they don't believe in eating pork, they don't believe in drinking wine, and if they do, that will be sinning against their conscience. And while yet you believe it's okay to eat pork and drink wine, while the, the host of the house who's not a Christian and who's a pagan doesn't have any problem with wine or pork, and if we say, no, thank you, as the host, he will be insulted if you don't eat his food. So you as the strong Christian, what do you do? Do you eat the food and offend your fellow weaker believer and violate his conscience? Or do you say, no, thank you, and not violate your Christian, or Christian brother's conscience, but you insult the host? What do you do? Well, clearly in Romans 14, Paul's argument is, by all means, insult the unbelieving host because the greater priority is to never willingly violate the conscience of a fellow believer for whom Christ died. Because the believer's conscience needs to be nurtured, protected, trained, reinformed with every decision that comes his way and brought to maturity. The conscience of the unbeliever, what is it? It is darkened, it is condemned. It is unsaved. He doesn't need to be trained in his conscience. It needs to be reinvigorated and brought to life, doesn't it? The unbeliever. So this flies in the face of what we're being told today many times regarding the philosophy of being seeker-sensitive. 
Because in this illustration right here, Paul's priority is not seeker-sensitive. It's what? It's brother-sensitive comes before seeker-sensitive. There are times to be seeker-sensitive. But in this case, the priority from Paul, very clear. you got a choice. Don't sin against your brother. Because he's part of your spiritual family. We need to pray for the salvation of that guy who kicked you out of his house. So that he can get a new conscience. And then understand all of this. Very important. Very practical for great area decisions in Christian liberty. Romans 14. Go on to number 15. Now, there were times to drink wine in the Bible. And some of these are, could apply to us. Some not necessarily, but here they are. Letter A, when the, when the Nazarite vow was over, he could go back to drinking wine. Uh, number six. For the dying or those who are severely sick, Proverbs 31, because wine was used many times in a medicinal kind of way, like I said, with my sister in the hospital. You've got a dying person, it will comfort them in a very practical way. God says that is a good thing. That's how it's being used in Proverbs 31. See, for medicinal purposes in a different kind of way, not somebody who's dying. But remember I said that some churches say that a pastor, elder, preacher, overseer in the church could never drink wine under any circumstances whatsoever. That flies in the face of 1 Timothy 5.23. Because Paul says to Timothy, apparently Timothy was sick. He was sick bad enough it wasn't getting better. He was sick bad enough that Paul knew about it was highly concerned. And he told uh, Timothy, Timothy, I understand you've got some severe stomach pains. Boy, you need to take care of that. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, the pastor, the elder, the overseer, no longer drink wine exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I mean, this, this could be true in some countries you travel to today, right? You don't trust the water. It's got bacteria and whatever, and it needs to be cleansed somehow. You either drink, either, you know, try to kill the bacteria with the wine that has alcohol in it or something like that. But that's what he's saying. So wine was, had medicinal purposes that was constructive, and Paul even commends that to a pastor. And then letter D is there, it was, you could drink wine alone with your spouse. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because in the Song of Solomon, eight chapters on a marriage relationship, wine is almost referred to in every chapter, or it's referred to in almost every chapter, either literally or metaphorically, but always with reference to wine that is fermented between husband and wife and in a good way. And a couple of times, literally, as husband and wife are sharing wine together as one. And then 15E, uh, with meals, just real simple. And that's the majority of times of how it's used throughout the Bible. It was the drink of the day. Number 16, Christians have liberty in Christ but are not to misuse or flaunt their liberties. So in light of everything I said, you need to be cautious and remember what the priorities are. And like I said, if you chose to abstain from alcohol the rest of your life, that would be a decision that God would bless. And actually, if you, if you chose to do that, it just makes decision-making decision easier, doesn't it? But you can't be a legalist about it. Um, but Paul says, those of you who think you have the liberty to drink some wine in an appropriate context with moderation, never getting intoxicated, then you need to exercise your liberty with care in Christ. For you were called to freedom or liberty, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, indulging the flesh, but the love and serve one another. So you give greater priority to how it's going to affect others around you. First Peter 2.16 says the same thing. There's a hierarchy of priorities here. And the greatest hierarchy, uh, priority in the hierarchy of our ethics on this issue is number 17. 1 Corinthians 10.31. That should be a theme verse for every Christian. Whether then you eat or drink, 
How practical, how pertinent. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So that's priority number one. So as a Christian and you're thinking through from this day forward how, what your view on alcohol is going to be, what your view on wine is going to be, it starts with committing it to the Lord, asking Him to give you His wisdom, His insight, search the Scriptures, re-examine all of your priorities, how you can best honor Him, live for Him, edify others, protect the conscience of unbelievers, be a testimony to the unbelieving world, what's good for your own personal edification if it's profitable, then you have the freedom in Christ to make that decision. But going back to Ephesians 5.18, one thing that is not your decision or my decision to make, and that is ever to drink alcohol to the point of excess, that it makes you intoxicated or drunk, for that is a sin and will inhibit the Holy Spirit trying to work in your life and will inhibit you from obeying God and living a fruitful life for Christ. And you won't honor Him and I won't honor Him. So, there it is. Quick overview of what I hope the Bible has to say about wine, drinking, and drunkenness. But uh, thanks for tuning in. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word that just brings up so many diverse subjects that we have to be confronted with and think through. And in alcohol, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one in our day and age and in the church. You have so much to say about it, God. I just pray that uh, some of these truths will stay in our minds to help us think through these things so that we can live our life and even the mundane areas of life in a way that pleases you furthers your kingdom, uh, is an encouragement to the believers, edifies our own walk with you, and that we can remain a light to the world. And uh, just pray that you'd go before us and continue to be our teacher through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.